Welcome to episode 21 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. If it weren't so early in the morning, we'd be raising a glass of 2018 Riesling Reserve from Maison Trimbach, the iconic Alsace producer. I'm definitely going to be having a glass of it later. It's absolutely delicious, and it's from the great wine company that has sponsored us for the last four episodes. The good news is that their offer of 10% off to listeners remains in place until the end of January, and they will deliver anywhere in the UK. So go to their website, greatwineco.co.uk, and use the code BREAKOUT, all one word, capital letters, to get your discount. Yes, and it really does have an extraordinary variety of wines, from biodynamic and organic to vegan, as well as very special vintage champagnes and so on. So we can't recommend the great wine company more highly. Now, we've got a lot to get through this week, which uh, is a very rude way to start. (laughs) Puts our our guests under pressure. We've got a lot to get through. Be quick. But anyway, without further ado, I am absolutely delighted and honoured to welcome our first guest, Indu Rubasingham, the Artistic Director of the Kiln Theatre in Kilburn. Some of you might remember it as the Tricycle Theatre. I'm probably not meant to mention that because it's been rebranded as the Kiln Theatre some time ago, actually. Some of you will know, anyway, that it was the Tricycle. Indu took over from Nicholas Kent in 2012, kicking off her residence with an absolute storm by putting on Lalita Chakrabarti's Red Velvet, which I saw and it won loads of awards. Those two things are not related. Since then, she's gone from strength to strength. She became an MBE in 2017 and earlier this month, and we're only just halfway through this month, the Kiln Theatre won Theatre of the Year at the 11th Annual Stage Awards. So we've got absolutely loads to talk to. Welcome, Indu. Hi. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. And I was so excited you were able to come on and talk to us, Indu, as I've been coming to your theatre for years, and I just want to say... I'm still talking about one of your very early productions, which was Paper Dolls. It was one of the best, most uplifting musical plays I've ever seen. It was hilarious and joyous and deeply thought-provoking. I really, really loved it. So for me, that put you on my map forever. Loved it. Anyway, we want to hear about your extremely well-deserved award. I read in the stage that the judges were awed by the work that the Kiln has done in the community during lockdown. So can you start by telling our listeners a bit about what you and your executive director, Daisy Heath, have been doing? Yeah, um, I'd just like to say it was the whole team. So uh, me and Daisy are sort of like the the face of the organisation, but the whole team, like as you can imagine with all of us and all, you know, every lots of sectors and particularly the the theatre sector, it was sort of crazy with the lockdown. And, um, and, you know, we were fighting for survival. Though we immediately went into sort of fast drive to try and work out how to get projects online, all our, our young people's work. So I'm really proud of the team that we did do that. We produced films and uh, a live online theatrical event with our young companies. We also uh, worked with the charity Food for All, distributing free food. We've been working we're working in partnerships with our, our local surgery uh, next door. We literally have a GP surgery next door and how to support what they need and how can we work together. 2020 has been an incredibly tumultuous year in lots of ways, but it's particularly young people that are being affected and uh, it's like how to get their voice and so we've just started sort of a local young writer schemes where we also pay young people 
to to participate, to get their voices and to get their voices out and to platform them. But also a project that we've been uh, working with is called The Agency, which is about how to how to encourage young people to be entrepreneurs and how to invest in them. And there's various projects like that. The lockdown forced us to really reevaluate who we are and what we're about. And it was actually how do we get deeper roots into the community? How do we serve the community when we can't produce plays? So that's been the real the real thinking behind uh, a lot of the activity. But I just want to add, if, I don't, if you don't mind, I just think all theatre has been really everyone who works in theatre have sort of deserved this kind of award because to survive and to stay in it has just been just been a huge uphill struggle quite right too it's been an absolute misery for everyone but what you're talking about is very very inspiring and i could spend hours talking to you about each and every initiative you've undertaken and i want to kind of start with i'd love to know more for example about what you're doing with your local surgery because my understanding is you're working with people living with diabetes. How does that work? It started off as a conversation about what do what what are the issues in the the, the area, and the the head of the surgery said actually it's awareness around diabetes, and because COVID is taking over, that 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 information is not getting out there. So we're beginning to work with advisors and stuff about how to create how to start working with a small group of people through theatre, through information to get that information out and to. to and, and pilot that scheme. And then if that works, then grow that even further. So we're very exploratory pilot scheme stage at the, at the moment with a diabetes project. What intrigues me about what you're saying is that, you know, a theatre exists to put on wonderful arts and bring people together in a live experience. But you're saying to a certain extent that one of the silver linings, if you like, is a sort of reimagining of the kiln's place in the community. I mean, is this something that you think you can carry on after the pandemic or is it simply too much? Pre the pandemic, we absolutely believed in our outreach programme. It was it was really important because like there are over 100 languages spoken in the local schools. So how do we bring them in? How do we, you know, if we have this mantra that we're a theatre for all and we want everyone to feel welcome, what the pandemic has shown is when you can't do the work, the work on stage, what are you? And what does it mean to be local? And what does it mean to be civic in this time? Ideally, none of these projects are one-offs. They will continue, they will develop, they'll grow. And actually, this is an advantage to us because it will it's going to make us have stronger relationships with our community so that when we do open with doing plays, we can bring them even more in with us. Uh, and, and and also, we can listen to them. So, I mean, I do feel passionately that the... It sounds a sort of odd way of putting it, and some arts people react badly to it, but I think the arts are much more than just the arts, if you see what I mean, that they can give so much more to their local community. And that strengthens, I think, the kind of case for the arts. Sorry, it's kind of a bit utilitarian there, but you know what I mean. I totally, I totally agree. I remember when I first started um, as artistic director and uh, a project that's, that I call the heart of the theatre, both the tricycle and the kiln, was a project called Minding the Gap, uh, which works with recently arrived uh, young people, immigrants uh, that are either asylum seekers, refugees, or recently arrived immigrants um, uh, between 12 and 16. And it's called this Minding the Gap project. In my first year, we, we moved the project to put them in the theatre. And there are all these young people that were so excited to be on the stage, like really hyper excited. And it was fun. At the end of the project, I just sort of went, I got on stage and thanked them. And then this young 
this young person came up and sort of like pulled my sleeve and just sort of um, sort of said, I said, can I say something? And he was very formal sort of English and sort of said, I want to thank my teachers, even though they weren't the teachers, they were the workshop leaders and stuff. And I said, and he just sort of said, I came to this country, I was nobody. I stand on this stage, I'm somebody. And that wow. articulation of that thought just really blew me away and just sort of really, really reminded me the power of what what we can do, you know, at its best, it can be so empowering. Well, I just wondered, Indu, how you're carrying that on in lockdown, because I really, really loved reading and hearing about the Minding the Gap project. And I was very struck by how you're using theatre, not just with children, but with young people who are writing and having to build confidence. I'm just wondering how you're doing that uh, without being able to get everybody gathered and onto the stage yeah well this is a real difficulty because also what as we as we all know what what this pandemic and everything has shown is it's it's exacerbated the divisions in society yeah and very uh, much so and we really really see that in brent and the and, and you see that with my what we when the, when we had the first lockdown what what was really heartbreaking is that you know not everyone has not every young person has facilities to be online online activities isn't great but it's better than nothing I agree. I think it is very hard because one of the things is, as well with homeschooling and, and this presumably is what you're talking about is we spend all our lives trying to tell our kids to get off their phones and their screens and get out there and, you know, get into a theatre or whatever. And now we're saying actually the only way at the moment you're able to communicate with them is, is through a screen again. It must be so frustrating. Yeah. I'm not I'm not one that thinks that everything's going to take off digitally with life <laughs> You were hoping to open again in March. Nobody knows, obviously, whether that's going to be possible. I'm obviously a bit of a pessimist. But you were going to open with Jade Anuka's debut play, Heart. What are your plans now that uh, it looks like March is not going to happen? Really, Ed, come on. Can you tell your government to let us know what's going on? I think no. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, um, it I'm, is I'm... very tough. It's tough because you honestly, I'm like, I'm just going to make a joke about it because it was like so literally before Christmas we had a plan, we had a plan for the rest of the year, the whole you know 2021, and then and and then like when things were you know when we went into I think tier four I can't remember anyway we went to, and I was talking to Daisy and I said look Daisy let's just give ourselves Christmas off we'll get back there'll be more information coming out let's just like January the fourth we'll 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 make some decisions do you know what I mean and we both went yeah and you know. Um, so January 4th came in last. So last week we made a set of plans and then literally on Monday we were changing them all given given oh. the information that was being leaked out or or that the press was implying because it just, you know, it honestly, it just keeps changing. What's lovely is that I can see the light, even though it's it feels very literally the dark it feels the darkest before dawn and like what's happening to the nhs and everything and and how virulent it seems but i do feel there's much more light like with the vaccine i do feel we will come out of this whereas like there were points like last summer you just kind of go i don't know what is going to happen so we are making still making plans i feel a bit more confident do you feel confident about the autumn ed um yes <laughs> I, I do feel confident about the autumn i don't feel confident about the easter or the summer but i feel 
confident about the autumn. That's good to hear, Ed. We're hearing this live. <laughs> Not live, but whatever. But I'm good. From I'm the just... front line, if only. In the meantime, I'm sure our listeners would love to know what they can watch, if anything, online, because you have talked about some of these. Um, what was Dear Future Generation? That was the young company, 19 to 25-year-old, and that's the, the project that they, they made over. So they literally went from being in the theatre every week in the and then just before Easter and then suddenly having to go online and, you know, they were working towards a play, a production on stage and then they turned that and they turned that into this project, which we actually then, which was just a, a recording, which is a, a film that's permanently on on the um, on our website. But the good thing is, I think the power of theatre is just, you know, I think we I think we'll all appreciate it more uh, including myself and thank you for the all the work you you did Ed with the the you know for the arts and your passion for it and everything because it's uh, meant a lot that's very kind thank you oh thank you so much Indu and huge good luck with it and um I'll be first in the queue when you open brilliant can't wait <laughs> thank you Charlotte thank you Ed now last week you might remember I told you I was very much enjoying reading out of thin air a book by the academic Michael Crawley about the time he spent running with Ethiopian long-distance runners. And Charlotte, who doesn't run, nevertheless was quite excited because she has actually, I've completely forgotten this, but she has spent a lot of time making films in Ethiopia. So she started asking me all sorts of questions, which of course I couldn't answer. So I said rather flippantly, let's get the author himself on. And such is the power of this podcast that we have with us celebrity author Michael Crawley. Good morning, Michael. <laughs> good morning. Thanks for having me. Michael, good morning. And um, thank you so much for coming on at such short notice. Um, I was determined to track you down, even if just to talk to you about Ethiopia. You're both a runner and an anthropologist, and I gather you lived in Addis Ababa amongst the runners for 15 months to research the book. So Ed's ahead of me in having read it already. My copy is on order, and I can't wait to get it because I've been reading quite a lot about it. It's had fabulous reviews. So tell our listeners a bit about what you found out. What is the secret of the Ethiopian long-distance runner? So I think there are a few things, really. I think the, the reason I wrote the book was because I felt like um, we really don't know very much about Ethiopian runners at all. We we kind of tend to talk about East African running. And when we talk about East African running, we're normally talking about Kenya because it's um, a more accessible country because the language is easier and things like that. So I really wanted to go in and spend a long time in Ethiopia, learn Amharic, um, try to... And did you? Did you learn Amharic? Uh, I learned a, a kind of runner's version of Amharic, I think. I'm very good at talking about times and, and training sessions and things and, and less good at talking about politics and things like that. But um, I get by on, on running. Oh, Charlotte, did you learn Amharic? Uh, no, I can say Ishi, which means ish, and Amasekanalu, which means thank you. That's about it. <laughs> the most used words are probably Ishi and Chow, which is actually Italian. But yeah, in terms of secrets, I, I don't think there's a, there's one secret. Um, I think there's a few things. There's the Ethiopians have this really strong belief in, in using kind of different environments around the city to the full. So kind of really trying to calibrate between different training sessions in the high forests and then lower down in a place called Akaki where they where they go to run faster because it's at lower altitude. And they also believe very strongly in, in this idea of kind of shared energy where they, they feel like it's possible to kind of share your energy with other people and therefore the power of the group is is really important in in kind of bringing running success. 
so I think they would be the main things. But there's also one of the things that people don't realize when they think about Ethiopian running, they tend to sort of imagine somebody running to school barefoot um, and kind of their success being derived almost kind of automatically from poverty. And actually what I found was that there's a really strong kind of institutional support for athletics in Ethiopia. There's lots of running clubs that are sponsored by the prisons, by the army, by the local bank and things like that. So there are a huge amount of, of athletes who are paid to run full time. And, and that's a huge factor in the success as well, I think. I wanted to ask you a bit about diet as well, because you, I noticed you said in one of your interviews that you had to eat an awful lot of injera, as I did, which is the flatbread made with teff. What did they eat? Um, they do eat a lot of injera, yeah. And that's it's kind of a, a local grain, which is very high in iron. So I think that's probably quite important for, for kind of red blood cells and things like that. So that makes sense. They also eat just a lot of pasta and rice and, and things um, as most uh, sort of distance runners would, I guess. I mean, I found the whole book very evocative. I should explain that um, I started the 0-5K BBC thing in uh, lockdown. Michael Johnson was my oral coach on this app. And uh, I now do run three times a week. In fact, I'm even thinking about running a marathon. But obviously, I was slightly put in my place reading this book because, Michael, you are a very fast runner, but I also found the whole the whole book very evocative. I mean, it obviously, it brings you into kind of Ethiopian culture and so on. And 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 what did strike me most about it was this kind of uh, sense of community and comradeship. I mean, people are competing against each other, obviously, but there is this, you know it's always a group run. Basically running on your own in Ethiopia is seen as deeply kind of antisocial behavior in the same way that yeah. <laughs> um, eating on your own is actually seen in the same way. If you if you go to a restaurant and eat on your own, that's seen as very strange that you wouldn't invite anyone to share your meal and, and things like that. So it's kind of, I think it's a sort of broader part of Ethiopian culture to, to, to do things together. But with the runners, yeah, it was it was very important to them to kind of to kind of grow together and develop together as athletes. That was seen as really important. But they also did some kind of more unusual kinds of, uh, training uh, so they would sometimes get up at three o'clock in the morning to go for a run through the city um, because it was kind of quieter on the roads things that we would see as being too risky or too dangerous as elite athletes in the UK so they would go up into the forest and run on extremely uneven terrain that was kind of a way of I think deliberately embracing the risk of a running career because for these guys you know there's very very small chance that they'll actually make it um, and I think some, sometimes running in these particularly dangerous places and, and going to parts of the forest where the hyenas are and things like that is also to kind of to kind of bring that risk to the surface and, and embrace it but it was always something that was done together and in that in those sorts of scenarios I was definitely not left behind because yeah you don't want to be left behind in in the hyena territory I guess. That was the other thing that I struck me in the book that there are a lot of these very early morning runs, lots of descriptions of you getting in a bus at sort of four in the morning and getting out in the freezing cold. It uh, can be so cold, Ethiopia. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we would get picked up at 4.30. And that was because people believed very strongly in, in using these different kind of environments around the city, as I said. So that was the reason for ha kind of having to get up at that time. But it meant that we would sort of set off at 4.30, quarter to five, arrive in time for sunrise, which is basically always at 6am in Ethiopia because it's on the equator. And then, you know, run 25, 30 kilometres, something like that. And then always get stuck in so much traffic going back into Addis that we'd get back to where we lived at sort of midday. So to go for a run, you've been out already for, you know, eight, nine hours sometimes. It's kind of really quite a, an exhausting way of doing research, I suppose. There's also this mad cross-country run, which you were, uh, it was a sort of almost an honour for you to be asked to take part in it. And your aim, I think, was to finish it. It's sort of six laps uh, and the winner is sort of fated. Yeah, I mean, that 
that race really kind of brings brings out how relative athletics is, I suppose, in a global sense. Because I'd been, I finished seventh in the Scottish national cross country um, the year before I went out to Ethiopia, and that was the Ethiopian national championships. And my my aim was, well, I I knew I was basically going to finish last, but my aim was not to get laps. <laughs> um, so it really did, it, yeah. It, it brought home just how how big a gap there is between um, you know Ethiopia and Kenya and and some other places. But uh, I won't give away whether or not I managed to finish finish the race before I got lapped. You have to read the book for that. <laughs> I know the answer, but um, like all great books, there's an ep- there must be an epilogue. Have you kept in touch with the friends you made when you were running in Ethiopia? Yeah, so um, very wide sort of trajectories um, that they followed since. So some of the some people have have given up running, moved back to the the farm, sort of with their families. Jamal Yima, who I talk about quite a lot, who's the Ethiopian record holder in the half marathon, is um, still living in Addis. Obviously, drives a nice car, lives in a nice house, has quite a lot of money. Um, and then you know, a few people have ended up going to a race abroad and and sort of staying in in the country that they've gone to. So they've kind of gone to uh, kind of claim asylum somewhere else or, or look for a new life somewhere else, having given up running. So very wide range of options for for runners. Fantastic. Well, I uh, I absolutely love the book. It was just a sort of way of me um, communing with my new fellow running community, even though I run at approximately a tenth of the speed. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, indeed, well, any, any average Ethiopian <laughs> runner the, runs that. The funny thing is you'll be, I bet you're doing some of your runs much faster than they do because on the on the days where they run easy they actually do jog incredibly slowly so oh yeah that's right um, there was one there was one section of the book i think where they're running sort of 10 minute kilometers and i thought yeah i could do that i could yeah. be a contender <laughs> well michael thank you very much thank you it's a brilliant book out of thin air all the details on our website when we put out the podcast and uh Obviously, Charlotte and I buying a book, we've doubled sales, but we hope that sales <laughs> will go through the roof. Yeah, that. fingers crossed. I'm sure, Thank I'm you. Sure it's, I'm sure it's now cult reading for wannabe middle-aged marathon runners, isn't it, Michael? <laughs> I hope so. Well, it's in it's in fantastic company on on your podcast because I've I'm also halfway through the Dan Lieberman's book. I'm reading Shuggy Bain and absolutely loving that. And uh, I think the Overstory is fantastic as well. So, um, if if to be in that company is an honour. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you very much. That's all we've got time for this week, but we hope you've been inspired to get running by Michael Crawley and to do everything you can to support your community by the wonderful Indu Rubasingham. And we'll keep you posted about everything that's going on at the Kiln Theatre. Meanwhile, keep listening. And please also subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review, as long as it's not too rude. If all really helps, and now you can also ask your smart speaker to play Breakout Culture Podcast and it will play the most recent episode. That makes me feel we've really arrived more than 30 podcasts later. I know, and I wish I had an Alexa or something to try it on. But you can also listen to our sister podcast, House Guest, with Carol Annette talking to all the big names in the interior design world. And you'll find her podcast next to ours on countryandtownhouse.co.uk. And if you add forward slash newsletter to that address, you can sign up to all our newsletters. And I really suggest you do because they're full of great things to do in lockdown. And you'll also find a special Great British Brands newsletter to celebrate the annual magazine which launched on Friday. It's the What Next 2021 edition of Great British Brands and in it we announced the winners of our first ever awards and our wonderful winners include the English National Opera who won our award for reinvention. 
Very well deserved indeed, and I say that as one of the judges. Regular listeners will remember that the head of the English National Opera, Stuart Murphy, told us on this podcast about his plans to stage La Boheme as a drive-in at Alexandra Palace last year. It was such a huge success that they won an award for that, plus other amazing innovative work that they've been doing, like singing and breathing work with COVID patients. There were also lots of other extremely impressive winners, from Rolls-Royce to Vivian Westwood. There were, so please do find out more. Have a look at the magazine. We're absolutely thrilled with it. It's online immediately, but on sale with Country and Townhouse at Newsagents from this coming Wednesday. It's got a really excellent and thought-provoking essay in it too by Neil Mendoza, the government's commissioner for cultural recovery and renewal, about the needs for brands to support culture, which is, after all, our greatest British export. So let's hope lots of great British brands out there listen up to Neil and follow in the great wine company's footsteps and sponsor us. Yes, and they should be aware that (laughs) following the government's admonition to Brexit Britain to get exporting, we're doing just that. Apparently, we are massively popular in Bulgaria. (laughs) We we are, apparently. um, I knew knew the Bulgarian (laughs) culture minister. Who is, uh, I think he's a famous sculptor in Bulgaria. Anyway. Oh, well, there looks, we go. He looks the part. <laughs> well, it's lovely to have listeners all over the world. Hello to our listeners in Bulgaria and hello to our listeners in America and South Africa. And in Peru. Hello, Rosemary and Paddington Bear. <laughs> anyway, that really is all we've got time for this week. But we'll be back next week with some singing and dancing to cheer us up. Bye. Bye. <laughs>